Welcome to Real Life. Hi, I'm Jim Miller, and you're listening to the Real Life LA podcast, coming to you from multiple locations in the San Gabriel Valley of sunny Southern California. We're a church for everyone, and we exist to lead people to Jesus, a community of grace with a God-sized vision that reaches from generation to generation. As you hear today's message, we pray that God speaks specifically to you and opens your heart and inspires you to live each day with more joy, beauty, and wonder. Hey, Real Life Church, it's Pastor Jim. It's good to be with you again. God bless you. Real Life Church exists to lead people to Jesus, to be a community of grace with a God-sized vision for every generation. And so I'm thankful that we get to do that. And primary ways we do that here at the church is through prayer, pantry, and parties. <laughs> we had a, a great first Friday prayer night uh, in this uh, last weekend, and we'll have another one first Friday of next month. We had a beautiful gathering of our pantry. Uh, we're feeding hundreds of people every month. We'll have another one next weekend. And uh, we'll have a big Halloween party at the end of the month, which is not just fun. It's also a great chance for you to invite friends into our family here at Real Life. So uh, bring candy in advance. Bring friends to the party. Uh, that's what we'll do this month. Hey, take a minute. Let's pray with, let, uh, please pray with me. Lord, thank you that you call us into your presence, that you call us into worship, and that in worship we're set free. So set us free from guilt, set us free from legalism, set us free from brokenness and sin. God, set us free to new life and real life in you. We thank you, Jesus, that you died to set us free. And so now place in our hearts today a deep understanding of your forgiveness and a passion to live out your forgiveness in the way we treat others. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Hey, I want to read uh, a text to you from the teachings of Jesus. This is week three of three in our little series on forgiveness. And I want to read to you from Luke chapter seven at verse 36. This is again an encounter that Jesus has with uh, someone who needs forgiveness and a parable that he crafts out of this story to speak to someone who's a bit legalistic. So there's a lot going on in this one little text. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. Listen to God's word. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, and again, remember, Pharisees, teachers of the law, know the scriptures very well. They're very strict and they're very legalistic and judgmental in their treatment of other people. So their, their goal is to keep Israel pure by punishing and driving out people who are impure. Pharisee invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So it says a lot that despite this person, despite the fact this person is a legalist, Jesus responds to the invitation to have dinner with him. Uh, that perhaps that is in the grace of Jesus, he will even deal with our lack of gracefulness. He went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Remember, they didn't have chairs, so they lay on the floor. Reclined at the table with him. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. This would have been a very expensive gift in an ancient world, in an agrarian society. Uh, an alabaster jar of perfume was worth a lot of money. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, 
he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. See, they're speculating at this point about who Jesus is. What is he? Is he, is he something divine? Is he, is he a prophet like the prophets of the, the Old Testament, of the Hebrew scriptures? And, and if so, prophets have a special sort of intuitive knowledge, a prophetic gift in which they can see what's going on in the world around him. And uh, this Pharisee, Simon says, if Jesus were a prophet, he would use his prophetic gift and see what kind of woman this was. And if he knew that, he shouldn't be touching her because good Jewish rabbis, Pharisees in particular, didn't come in physical contact with things that were unclean because that would make you ritually unclean. And so if you saw something that was unclean, you didn't touch it, whether it was a person or blood or uh, something dirty, you didn't come in contact with it because it made you unclean. And so Simon, who's speculating about Jesus' identity, says, well, if he were a prophet, he could see who she was. And if he saw who she was, he wouldn't touch her. Therefore, the conclusion, maybe he's not a prophet. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. And here's the, here's the parable that Jesus crafts. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, which is a day's wage, so more than a year's salary, and the other 50, so a month and a half, a couple months. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house and you did not give me water for my feet. It was standard in those days, walking around on dirty, dusty roads. When you went into someone's house, the servants would wash your feet. Uh, it's essentially like the, the coat room today where they take your coat. Uh, they, they'd wash your feet. Uh, the, you did not give me water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss. That was a common greeting. You did not give me a kiss. But this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head. Again, a common uh, entryway ritual to the home. Uh, you've been walking around. It's dirty outside. It's hot outside. It, it would be like uh, letting somebody step into the bathroom to wash, wash their hair, comb their hair, put some product in there. It was just a, a standard cleansing ritual and hospitality ritual when you entered a home. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. So Simon overall has not been a good host. He's brought Jesus to his home to evaluate whether he is a good person. And he's decided not. And he's treated them as though he's not a good person. He's not welcomed him with any of the traditional customs of hospitality. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This was the question Simon was wrestling with in his mind. Who is this? And because he, he rules Jesus out as a non-prophet because he doesn't see, or he seems like he doesn't see, and he touches that which is unclean. Simon says, ah, you're an outsider. And then Jesus forgives sins, something that's reserved only for God. No one can do that, 
God forgives sins when we offer the appropriate sacrifices at the temple. If Jesus can do that, Jesus is identifying himself with God. Now, I want to ask you two questions about this parable, about this story of Jesus, and about this, this overall story of his encounter with Simon and the sinful woman. Two questions about it. First, was the woman more or less beautiful when she left Jesus with her scars? Because she comes to Jesus with a broken life, a broken history. Probably terrible things have been done to her, and she has done terrible things as well. She comes to him in his brokenness, and he heals her through forgiveness. He sets her free. And in her overwhelming response of love and worship to him, she shows that she has embraced forgiveness. She's been healed. She leaves healed, but not without scars. Her memory is not wiped clean. She knows how she's lived. Is she more or less beautiful as she leaves the presence of Jesus with her healed scars? Not long ago, uh, somebody from the church gave us a gift. They uh, had a, uh, a friend, a person they encountered who made stained glass. And they, uh, they commissioned a, a, a stained glass window of the logo of Real Life Church in the, the colors that we often use. And she gave that to us for us to display. And when she gave it to me, she said something profound. She said, what I like about it is that it's a bunch of broken glass. It's a mess. It would look like trash if it was all scattered out on the ground. But the broken glass comes together to form a work of art and a message. And I felt like that was a good analogy for the church. Something broken that looks like a mess, that on its own is just trash. But it comes together to form a work of art and a message. One of the hardest parts of forgiveness is realizing you can't forgive and forget when every morning you look in the mirror and see the scars. The scars won't go away. They're constant reminders of our past. One of the hardest parts of forgiveness is realizing that we can suffer such deep wounds that the world is not the same again. You can't go back to the way it was before. And you carry marks in your heart or on your body that remind you of where you've been. And yet, in Jesus, there's still forgiveness. Second question. Was Simon's story more or less beautiful because of his righteousness, his commitment to the law? Because he was a righteous person. He was a, a good and devout person. He lived a holy life. He did everything right. He followed all the rules. He knew God's word. He attended temple regularly. He did all the, the things you're supposed to do. He fasted and prayed twice a week. He tithed. These are all the things the Pharisees were proud of. Was his life more or less beautiful because of his commitment to the law? Because see, I think a lot of us, you and I, view the law the way Simon viewed the law. And we view the law with a kind of a, a cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance is a term that a psychologist would use to describe that moment where you have two contradictory ideas in your head. 
And it feels like both of them are right, but somehow you know they don't work together. You have two ideas that disagree with each other in your mind, but you just carry them around because you can't figure out which one to get rid of. And all that feeling of uncertainty that comes with carrying around conflicting ideas, that's called cognitive dissonance. And Simon must have had a cognitive dissonance about the law. And you and I carry around a cognitive dissonance about the law because we believe in a loving and merciful God but we believe in a God who's righteous and places demands on us. Uh, I can show you uh, that you carry around a cognitive dissonance about God's law uh, by show of hands. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read to you some uh, statements, and if you think they're true, raise your hand. And I want you doing this on the Glendora campus. I want you doing this if you're at home. Raise your hands. Do you believe that God forgives sins? Right? It's what the Bible says. Do you believe that God forgives sins? If so, raise your hand. Okay. Do you believe that God cares how we live our lives? If so, raise your hands. Do you believe that God cares about how we live? So he forgives sins. We already said that. But he cares about how we live our lives. Do you believe that God forgets sins? It says this in the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews says God forgets our sins. Do you believe that? If you believe that, raise your hands. He forgets our sins. Okay. And do you believe that he's omniscient? He knows absolutely everything. Raise your hands on that. Okay, so he forgets our sins, and he knows everything. And he forgets and knows everything. Do you understand what I mean by cognitive dissonance, where you carry around ideas that don't seem to work together, but you think they're both true, and you don't know how to get rid of one of them? Does following Jesus mean you're not judged according to how good you've been? Because of the cross, you're made righteous. This is the teachings of the Scriptures. This is the whole book of Romans. This is all of Paul's writings. Because Jesus died for you, you are absolutely innocent. Do you believe that following Jesus means you're not judged according to how good you were? You're, you're judged as innocent, as completely forgiven when you believe. Do you believe that? If so, raise your hands. And finally, do you believe that it matters if you live a good life? Raise your hands. So it matters that you good, live a good life but you're not judged according to your, your good works. And you believe that God knows everything about you, but he forgets your sins. And you believe that God cares about how you live your life, but in Jesus you have absolute forgiveness and all the past is wiped away. Do you understand what cognitive dissonance looks like? Well, you and I usually carry around a kind of cognitive dissonance about God's law because we feel like God's, God is the judge. God is going to judge us. There's going to be a judgment day and I'm going to be measured according to God's goodness and my badness. And yet I believe that in Jesus, I'm totally forgiven. And the past is finished and gone, and I'm set free, and I'm made new, and it all depends on his grace and not on my works at all. There's a, there's a, a problem and a tension there. The Bible captures this. The Bible points out in the arguments that Paul and James have about whether or not we are saved by works or saved by faith. It captures this cognitive dissonance. And that cognitive dissonance makes us hold on to unforgiveness. Um, it's like something that happened um, to a famous uh, father of the church, Martin Luther, in the 16th century. Martin Luther was this devout, nervous, guilty Christian who walked around all the time with a guilty conscience feeling like God was mad at him and God was going to get him. He saw God as an angry father who was never satisfied. And one day Martin Luther was walking along in a rainstorm and was walking across a field and lightning struck a tree very close to where he was. And Luther heard in that the anger of a God in heaven screaming at him. And he fell down in the mud and said, 
Please, God, spare me. If you will spare me, I'll become a monk. And sure enough, he made it out of the rainstorm and had to become a monk because he had made a pledge to God that if God would let him live, he'd become a monk. And he went and joined an Augustinian monastery, became a monk, living a day in prayer and worship and gardening, whatever they do, whatever they do in the monastery, right? And, and we have on record that he was one of the most annoying monks the monastery had ever had because he wanted to spend day and night in confession telling the other monks about every bad thought that went through his head. He felt so guilty. He felt so sure that God was going to be mad at him. He could not confess enough to get all the badness out of him. He carried the weight of God's law on his shoulders. Guilty as conscience in the history of humanity. It was in reading Paul's letter to the Romans that he discovered that God's righteousness is a gift to us that comes to us from the outside. It's not like muscles that we build up inside of us by going to the gym and doing work. It's more like a shirt that we put on and now we're wearing it. It's given to us from someone else and we, we put it on, though we didn't earn it, we didn't make it, we didn't build up to it. It's just, we're just clothed in it. God's righteousness is a gift that we didn't earn and never could and don't have to. And with that, Luther started a revolution that changed the history of the world. That's the reason you and I right now are not uh, wearing nuns' habits and praying to saints and listening to the Pope. Right? Were it not for Luther, we would all still be part of the, the Roman Catholic Church. Luther started the, the Reformation that changed the history of the church. And it all came because he had this cognitive dissonance about a big, angry, scary God up there who he knew in Jesus who had died on the cross to set us free, not just from sin, but also from legalism. Many of us still carry around that cognitive dissonance. We've heard that we're saved by faith, but we believe there's a, an angry God up there with lots of rules waiting to judge us. And that, that tends to make us an unforgiving people. We carry around a guilty conscience, and so we go looking for guilt in other people. See, guys like Simon usually have a backstory. You know some people like Simon, or maybe you've been like Simon. Guys like Simon, usually when they were children, experienced wounds at the hands of an adult who didn't follow the laws the way they should. And so they grew up longing for boundaries. And they're attracted to rules. This is the kid who always goes and tattles to the teacher and tries to get the, the bad kid in trouble so that the, the law will be in place and the world will be better. When they discover a God who's a, a lawgiver, a judge, a police officer, someone who, who makes things right in the end, they love God. Because God is finally the one who will punish those who make the world scary. When they grow up, they still carry around a guilty conscience for all the ways they know they have broken the law. But they savor the idea that they might wield the law against their enemies to punish them. And as a result, they are unforgiving. 
They look at this sinful woman and say, gosh, she's terrible. And they look at Jesus who loves her and say, he must not be a prophet. Simon has let that cognitive dissonance about God's law and God's mercy hang in his mind. And he's committed himself to sort of an ambiguous relationship with the law that will punish him in the end, but that he wants to punish other people. Martin Luther carried that cognitive dissonance around and had to ask, so, okay, if we're saved by grace, if God's righteousness is a gift, if I just put it on like a shirt, what do I do with the law then? What, what do we do with the fact that God is the lawgiver and the judge? What happens to all that? And he says there are three things that the law does in the end. In the end, the law helps govern the state. It gives authorities uh, the power to punish criminals and to rein in evildoers. So it, it serves a function in society. It serves as a model of good behavior, right? It's a list of things that you should do to live well. Um, but most importantly, God's law is a hammer to our self-righteousness. Anytime we start to feel cocky and proud of ourselves, God's law is a hammer to our self-righteousness. That's what Simon missed. That's what the woman saw. That in the face of God's law, she was helpless. She could only throw herself at the feet of a merciful God and worship. And in throwing herself at the feet of Jesus, she found forgiveness and healing. And God offers that to you and I as well. If we struggle with unforgiveness because someone has wounded us and we want God's law to go and get that person, the day will come where we answer to that law ourselves. A far better and healthier and safer course to take is to lean on Jesus for healing so that our wounds, our scars, become a message and a work of art. There's, a, there's an ancient uh, Japanese um, form of art called kintsugi. Uh, and kintsugi is, comes from the, the restoration of glasswork and vases. Uh, traditionally, when, when we try to restore a vase or something glass that's been broken, we try to patch it together and mend it in a way that the scars absolutely disappear. We try to take it back to looking as close to it as it originally did as we can. And it's considered good when you can't see the marks of where it was broken. But kintsugi goes in the other direction. And instead, when the vases are mended, they're mended with gold. So the scars aren't hidden, they stand out. But the beautiful gold-inlaid cracks become part of the artwork. They actually make the artwork more beautiful. And so it is with you and I. When we step into the presence of Jesus with all of our brokenness, the terrible things that have been done to us and the terrible things that we have done in return to this world, Jesus heals us and restores us and sends us out into the world something beautiful, a message of love. Remember, when the woman left Jesus, she left smelling like him, like the perfume that she poured on his feet. As she anointed him with the perfume, she was covered in his anointing. 
And when we leave the presence of Jesus, we leave healed and blessed. The scars do not necessarily go away. They become part of our story and a tool in the hands of God. Many years ago, I went on a mission trip to South Africa in the wake of apartheid. In fact, just a few years after apartheid had ended and tensions were high in the country. The country was trying to reconcile and deal with its past and its wounds and its, its need for forgiveness. And yet the, the terrible nature of all the suffering they had been through. I met Desmond Tutu when we were there. And I met another woman, a woman named Linda Beale. And she had gone through a, a terrible experience of losing her daughter. Uh, her daughter was married, uh, was, uh, her daughter was murdered by a gang of young men um, who were in, in the riots in the post-apartheid era. And, and the men were caught and put in prison. But uh, Beale did something remarkable. When the men were later released from prison, she did not oppose their release, she forgave them. And sometime after that, she hired two of them to work in the foundation that was named for her daughter that was helping to restore peace in a scarred South Africa. You and I, are invited to take our wounds into the presence of Jesus. To worship him and in our love for him, to allow him to heal us. The scars won't go away. The scars will become something beautiful. And we will leave the presence of Jesus anointed to share love and forgiveness with a broken world. Think about it. If that's really the way it works, God's heart is the most beautiful of all because of the number of times it has been broken when we have rejected him and run away and the number of times it has been mended when he calls us home to himself and heals us, and restores us. That can happen right now if we give our lives to Jesus and allow him to place forgiveness in our hearts. Pray with me. Jesus, um, if somebody right now, listening in their home, listening on one of our campuses, if, if they've come to a place where they're ready to turn in your direction, then, then we say now, Jesus, forgive us. Heal our wounds, the things that we have done and the things that have been done to us. Mend those wounds and make them something beautiful. Make of my life a message of your love that I can share with other people. Place in my heart a kind of forgiveness for those who have wronged me that I cannot bring about myself. Make me whole and allow me to dedicate my life 
to living for you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. God bless you. I'll see you again. Thanks for joining us today. Now, will you help us welcome others to real life? Share our podcast or find us on Facebook or Instagram at Real Life LA. If you'd like to become a supporter, please visit reallife.la and tap give to help us welcome everyone to real life. God bless and have a wonderful day.